This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture that was previously read came from Luke's gospel. The reading was the fifth chapter and from the 36th through to the 39th verse. And I'll read it once again for all of us. It reads as follows. And he was also telling them parables. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Every semester, when I am first introduced to my students at the university, I begin all of my lectures with a quote. Every class, every lecture, I begin with a quote. A quote I learned from A.R. Bernard, and the quote says, education happens at the edge of discomfort. Education happens at the edge of discomfort. The quote serves to indicate that very often, whenever we are on the brink of anything that will be difficult or challenging for us, it is likely that we're about to learn something new. And one of the main ways that we know that we're about to learn something new, especially in the church, is when we hear statements from people such as, we've never done it that way before. Or, that's not the way we used to do it. Uh These are the phrases we often hear when we are at the edge of some kind of uncomfortable change. Mm. And when we get to that brink or that edge, the fear of the unknown begins to overwhelm us in such a way that it prevents us from imagining that anything good can be the outcome. It is at the edge of discomfort that fear says you're too old to go back to school. Mm. It is at the edge of discomfort where fear says you should not apply for that job or that position. It is at the edge of discomfort where fear says you're not smart enough to start a new business. It is at the edge of discomfort where fear says you should stay in that abusive relationship. And it is at the edge of discomfort that fear says sometimes you should leave the marriage. Loneliness, rejection, uncertainty, feeling or being judged, getting hurt, inadequacy, loss of freedom all represent discomforts that pull us out of the possibility of doing anything different. But interestingly enough, The one thing that is common with all of these fears as we stand on the edge of discomfort is change. 
Something is about to change. And we are afraid of it. We are uncertain about it. We are anxious about it. And we dread it. But change is inevitable. And since we all have to face changes in our ever-changing lives, whether we like it or not, we need to be prepared for it. So today I want to talk specifically about something that is changing right before our very eyes. We have all heard about it. We've all seen aspects of it. We've all been exposed to it in some way. And most, if not all of us, are frightened by it. The thing I'm talking about is artificial intelligence, or AI. And while many of us have heard the term, most of us have no idea what it really means or even what it entails. So I want to, as the church, talk today about AI using somewhat of a biblical lens and see if I can generate some level of discomfort in the pews in the hopes that we might become better <laughs> educated. I aim to show that change, while scary, is nothing to really fear because there is nothing new under the sun. Amen. And with our focus scripture that was just read from Luke in mind, I've elected to title this message, New Wineskins. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you that we have come now to the preaching moment. We've offered you our songs of praise, our worship through giving. We've offered you our hearts, our broken hearts even. We've offered you our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to a holy God. We've offered you everything. We even told you, Lord, today that we love you more than anything and everything. Now, Lord, we need to hear from you. So speak through this preacher. Use now this lump of clay and may it speak life into your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said before, change is inevitable. And while education happens at the edge of discomfort and in uncomfortable situations, many of the luxuries that we enjoy today, and I would dare even go so far as to say many of the luxuries that we take for granted were once very uncomfortable for the people in the past to embrace. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, just imagine with me for a moment how uncomfortable it would have been for you talking to you directly, to move from taking a bath outdoors to taking bath indoors. Would be uncomfortable? <laughs> how, how uncomfortable would it be for you, talking to you all, to move from using an outdoor toilet in the woods to a bathroom in your house? How about getting to work on a horse and buggy carriage instead of a Honda or a Mazda? How uncomfortable would it be for you to move from having one channel on TV to multiple channels on TV and on top of that in color? Come on, moving from using a payphone with quarters to making calls with a smartphone. Yes, How uncomfortable would it be for you to move from no caller ID to caller ID? And by the way, that took five years to get approved. Now, just imagine how uncomfortable that would be for us. 
and I'm looking at all of your faces because you know I'm being facetious because none of y'all think that that would be uncomfortable. You would gladly move. Why? Because you are enjoying those luxuries now and you can't imagine what it would have been like because you're so used to the comforts and the luxuries you enjoy today. But for the people back then, it was scary. It was frightening. What did it mean? By the way, this is not the way we used to do it. And when you come up on that place, I'm suggesting to you that you need to really take stock of what it is that you are actually really afraid of. And the answer is change. Why on earth would anyone have a problem not letting go of their old eight tracks, I'm dating myself, and embracing, watch this, TDK or Memorex? I know some of you all know what I'm talking about. Why on earth would anyone have a problem not letting go of the old VHS, which I still today don't know how to program, and embrace the new DVR? Why on earth would anyone have a problem not letting go of the old flip phone and embracing the new BlackBerry smartphone? And, you know, the people who shout the loudest are the ones who have the most difficulty. (laughs) Why on earth? Would anyone have a problem, get this, not letting go of the old Commodore 64 and embracing the new Apple MacBook? I could go on and on and on with example after example. Why on earth would anyone have a problem not letting go of the old and embracing the new? That's the question. So while I have gotten your attention, What's so scary about artificial intelligence? What's so scary about AI? Well, to get into that, we must first talk for a few moments about human intelligence. The idea behind human intelligence in general is that it is a unique characteristic inherent in human beings that involves brain functions such as decision-making, learning, and cognition. Now, before you all start sending me emails and messages that dogs and cats are intelligent, I must caution you that there is a very big difference between human intelligence and instincts, conditioning, and adaptability. And I'm sure that none of you here would want to argue with me that a squirrel or even a border collie like Lassie could have invented the iPad. I'm just saying. The kind of intelligence that I am talking about that is inherent to human beings is not only capable of decision making or capable of learning or capable of cognition, but is capable of all three at once. Human beings formulate, design, We solve problems, we improve conditions, and develop ideas based on challenges or even perceived challenges that confront our daily existence. Human intelligence is what got us to the moon, and it is human intelligence that will do even more. It is human intelligence, a human characteristic that allows us to engage in a cognitive and a mental process that accesses creativity. Mm. 
To make it plain, human intelligence, unlike the characteristics of any other known entity, is capable of creativity. And it is by no means an accident when God said, let us make man in our image. He meant that human beings, as we reflect him as our creator, we do so every time we create something. Whenever we create something that someone might not have seen before, we are in fact reflecting the image of our creator. It is inherent in human beings to be creative because what? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If you are made in the image of God, there is something about you that is God-like. Which is exactly why we say in this church, when you walk through these doors, we affirm your dignity as a human being. Whether or not the world is chaotic around you, at the end of the day, God saw fit in his immense creative ability to make you. Which means if I don't even know your value, it doesn't matter. He does. And it's only his opinion that matters about who you are, not what I may or may not think about you. But in our creativity, we have corrupted it to the point where we believe we can create an image of you that does not reflect what God says you are. Brothers and sisters, I want to try to make sure you understand what I'm telling you. You matter to God. Whether you believe it or not, there is something about you that God sees and sees himself. Wow. So much so that he would say, you're a hot mess, but I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to send my son, my only begotten son, to die in your place. So that if you just believe, you might experience eternal life. But I digressed. So, (laughs) but this human intelligence is so creative that it is able to learn from extremely large amounts of data using inputs and outputs, behaviors and consequences, stimuli and responses, experiments and results, all through what we know or call as the scientific method. And using those data points, they form patterns and sequences that can be simulated and replicated and duplicated to give specific results anytime anywhere and anyhow. I'm sounding like the engineer that I am. And when these simulations form a process or set of rules that can be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer, we call that an algorithm. When you can form patterns that says, and every time you recognize the pattern, You can predict what the outcome is going to be. It's an algorithm that does that. Oh, yes. It's algorithms that make it easy for you to Google something and it pops right up. It's an algorithm that tracks your spending on Amazon.com that causes telemarketers to know what to send to your email address or your cell phone. It's algorithms that check when a student's paper is plagiarized. It's algorithms like ChatGPT that will write a student's paper for them to hide their plagiarism. (laughs) It's an algorithm that will check if a student used an algorithm to write their paper to hide their plagiarism. 
head, it will be a professor like me that uses an algorithm to check the algorithm that found the algorithm that the student used to write and plagiarize their paper. Y'all see where I'm going with this? And just to make it plain, if you do the same thing over and over again, it won't take long for an algorithm to recognize the pattern and to use that pattern to predict what you will do, or better yet, what you will buy next. I think, on a more serious note, I think when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, they probably used some kind of algorithm to determine the security patterns of the Israeli Defense Force. I hope you get my point. And since the patterns of data points have become so immense, so overwhelming for human beings to analyze, we cannot process all that data. These algorithms will not only identify the patterns out of this immense amount of data, but use those patterns, hear me church, to lead to some kind of specific decision. And when the algorithms begin to make the logical decisions from sets of complex patterns without human intervention, we call that artificial intelligence. Got it? Artificial intelligence is what makes it possible for machines to learn from experience with data patterns adjust to new patterns, new inputs, and to perform almost human-like tasks. Most AI examples you hear about today, from, from chess playing on your computers to self-driving cars, which we are seeing more of today, they rely heavily on deep learning and data processing technologies where computers are trained or programmed to accomplish specific tasks. It's AI that recognizes your face on your phone. It's AI that is making the little iRobot in your house vacuum your floor and remember how to get back to its docking station to recharge. It's AI that sends you a ticket when you go through the toll plaza without your easy pass. <laughs> now, now, I'm talking from experience. <laughs> Now, in the context of this message, I can't go into all the different applications of AI. But suffice it to say that Hollywood has done a great disservice in programming the fear and hysteria around AI with movies like The Terminator or The Matrix or more recently, The Creator, that depict AI as human-like robots that take over the world. Now, while I can't say that won't happen or that can't happen, here is what I can say, and I say this without apology or hesitation. I can say that it will be AI that finds missing children. It will be AI that performs complex medical procedures with precision and accuracy. It will be AI that finds the cure for deadly diseases, perhaps even cancer. And it will be AI that prevents air traffic control accidents that occur because of human error. Yeah. Mm. 
And here's my personal belief. My per Listen, you don't have to own it, but this is my personal belief. It will be AI that causes someone to believe in God. I believe that with all of my heart, with all of this AI, somebody's going to believe in God because of it. How, I don't know. But let me briefly illustrate to you, if I may, a principle known as the teleological argument for the existence of God using intelligent design. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If you're walking down the street one day and you're going down the sidewalk and you notice that there are quarters or coins just all over the sidewalk, just thrown over the sidewalk, coins everywhere. As you're walking down the street, you could reasonably conclude that maybe someone dropped them. I mean, that's reasonable. If you're walking down, you see a lot of quarters and coins on the side of the road, on the sidewalk, you could reasonably conclude that someone dropped those quarters. But if you are walking down the street and you notice that those quarters or coins were neatly stacked, maybe in groups of four, just neatly stacked, you must conclude that someone did that. There is no room for possibility because those quarters are not going to fall out of somebody's pocket and stack up so neatly. See? So that's why I believe the real benefit of AI is yet to be determined. See, now that's the argument for intelligent design because we see creation and we see all these things around us and listen to me, as good as man is, trust me, man is not as good as you think he is. God is good. And AI does not catch God by surprise any more than the iPad caught him by surprise. I heard a preacher say this one time, that the answer to the iPad and its development was in the mind of Adam. And I was thinking about that. I'm processing that. It was, in, it was already in the mind of Adam. Adam just needed, and through generations of generations, to learn a little bit more about. Because if he knew what we know today, didn't change the fact that he had the capacity to know it. What an interesting thought. So what creativity is yet to be uncovered in you? I'm just saying. So now that I've made you a little uncomfortable, I think, <laughs> with all this talk of technology and AI, because remember, education happens at the edge of discomfort, right? Let's look at the biblical perspective and the relevance of all of this. I'll read again. The Gospel of Luke. Here's what it said. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. 
And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let's begin with the parts found in verses 36 and 37, which are basically making the same basic point. Let's talk about the pieces of cloth for a moment. For the same stresses among us, two things are happening with the new cloth and the old garment. First, the old garment is torn. It has some kind of tear, otherwise you're not going to want to patch it, right? So the old garment is torn, and it is already in need of some kind of repair. Follow the logic. The old garment has fulfilled its useful life, but there is still a desire to hold on to it and get a few more years out of it. Are you with me? That's like me, right? My wife will tell you, my pants and my shoes, they will be done. I may even have a hole in the bottom of my shoe, but I'm like, nobody knows. And I can still shine it and still get a little more out of it before I go spend money on it. The only time I decide the shoe got to go is when I step into a puddle of water. Now my socks is wet. And I was like, okay, I can't patch the old. You see, you want to patch the old when you want to hold on to it just a little bit longer. But since it is old, that old garment is no longer available. You can't find it anymore anywhere. And so now you're going to have to take a new piece of garment that is already its own integrity. You're going to cut a piece out of the new garment and now you're going to try to stitch it on to the old and it's going to cause a mismatch. But the second problem comes up when the garment is washed. And that is the new garment will shrink. And when it shrinks, it tears the old. When this happens, the owner realized the hard way, because <laughs> he wanted to keep the pants, realized the hard way that this was not a good idea. For she has ruined the old garment, which, was, which has already served its purpose, but has also ruined the new garment that she cut. She was forced to learn something new at the edge of discomfort. Are you still tracking with me? Let's talk a little bit now about wineskins. For the sommeliers, that's French, it's a big word, I practice it. Sommeliers, that means wine experts among us. Verse 37 talks about wine and wineskins. Now what you need to know is that when wine, whenever wine is put into any kind of wineskin, Certain gases are formed within the wineskin as the flavor and the color and the balance and the boutique of the wine grows. Now, when wineskin is new, it can expand and hold both the wine and the gases together. However, if someone poured unfermented juice or new wine, into an old wineskin, the new gases that the new wine forms is now being added to the gases that were already present in the old wineskin, and the old wineskin cannot manage to keep the old gas, the new gas, and the wine, and so it bursts or explodes. That's what happens. This is basically why Jesus introduces a twofold problem. Number one, new wine would cause the old wineskin to burst. But the second is that you lose both the new wine, because it's spilled on the ground, and the old wineskin 
when it burst. In the very same way with the garment, you lose the old garment, but you tore the new garment, so now you've lost two garments. Same thing, you put new wine into the old wineskin, the old wineskin burst, you lose the wineskin, but you also lose the new wine because it spilled on the ground. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So both of these metaphors are actually telling you the same thing. Now, in both of these examples, and brothers and sisters, y'all got to stay with me because the church, I, I, I got to say, sometimes we come to churches and we hear a lot of messages, but it has no value to us because we're so interested sometimes in getting people emotionally charged that they leave without anything of value or use to their personal and practical lives. So I want you to stay with me because there is something we need to learn. Having said that, in both of these examples, the thing that is common, that is, it's trying to make something new fit with something old. That's what's common in both of these metaphors. But notice carefully that both the old garment and the old wineskin had already served their useful purposes and were no longer fit to contain anything anymore in accordance with its own design. They had both served their time, yet the seamstress and the sommelier wanted to milk them for everything they got. In other words, they just wouldn't let them go. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, I can relate. When my wife had bought me a six megapixel camera, it was the best camera ever. And then I met somebody who got a 12 megapixel camera and then my wife wanted to buy me a 12 megapixel camera and I said, why? My six megapixel is good enough for me. It was good enough. Now you don't even need, you just need your phone now. But I'm just saying, it was good enough for me. So I was stuck in my not willing to let go. This is not the way I used to take pictures. Are you with me? This is not the way it's always been done by me. I couldn't let go of the fact that I was comfortable. Why? The text says, did Jesus not say it? And anyone who tastes the old wine is saying what? The old is good enough. But that's not where Jesus ends the conversation. See, the tragedy in the text is that in holding on to the old container, not only did they lose the old garment and the old wineskin, they also lost the new cloth and the new wine as well. This is the tragedy. When we do not allow ourselves to recognize that there are times when we have to learn to let some things go their natural way. Furthermore, nowhere in the text does it say that the old was forgotten, just that it was not applicable to contain the immensity, the fervor of the new. Jesus said, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What does that even mean, church? To answer that question, let's first talk about new wine, contextually, metaphorically, symbolically, and spiritually. Wine, whether old or new, serves the purpose of bringing joy and merriment to people, especially during an event or a celebration. If you recall Jesus at the wedding of Cana, he had turned water 
into wine when the host of the party faced embarrassment that he did not have sufficient wine for his guests. Y'all remember the story, right? But what is remarkable about this miracle is that the, let's call it the Jesus wine. The Jesus wine was so perfect. It was so amazing that everyone, the host and the guests, everyone was so excited that they were like praising the host, saying most people would serve their good wine first at the party and leave the old wine for later on. Why? Because when everybody's drunk off of the new wine, they won't know they're drinking the worst wine. But these people are saying, wait a second, you gave us the bad wine first, and now you saved the best for last. Wow, you are an amazing host. You knew we would be drunk as skunks, but now you gave us the best wine ever, right? <laughs> now, they're thinking in their mind that what they got was the older wine. Because when you think you get old wine, old wine tastes better than new wine. But they weren't getting old wine, were they? They were getting Jesus wine. They were getting a new wine. Notice I said, I'm choosing my words carefully. They're getting a new wine. You see, when we read the text, we kind of put our minds in this place where old wine, new wine. And what do we think about? Tradition and new, new culture. We think about the old who built the church and the new people who are trying to take over the church. That's how we think. We think that way and we go, we don't want to give the young people any room in the church because they don't understand tradition. That's not the way we used to do it. That's what we all say. But the text is not talking about that. And if you think the text is talking about that, you're going to be just as mad and tell the young people you can't worship the way you choose to worship because that's not the way we've always done it. Listen, if the young people want to sing to their heart's content, let them sing to the glory of God. Whatever they want to feel, it's our job to make sure that we walk alongside them to make sure that they know that they too are made in the image of God. I don't have to make you feel like I can use my experience, my skill set, all of what I've got, and to lord it over you for you to feel bad. But at the same time, young people, we have something to teach you. Because you're not going to get from, <laughs> watch this, 8-track to TDK and Memorex without having been to 8-track land. If you follow what I'm saying, you're not going to get to to, to a smartphone without having had the brick or the flip phone. So there is something that we build upon over time that has value. And you do yourselves a great disservice when you scorn or scoff at the old traditions. Right? It's why we do what we do in this church. We hold on to some traditions, but we also have room for the new. So I said I'm using my words carefully. Jesus said, no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. He's talking to me and people like me. My old camera was good enough. That's not the point of the text. Meaning, if all you're used to is the goodness of old wine, when you have then you will have absolutely no desire for any new wine because you'll be so satisfied with the old and therefore you conclude that the old is good enough. So when Jesus changed the water into Jesus wine, he was not serving old wine. He was serving a new wine, a new wine. But this was not any old kind of new wine. This was the new wine that Jesus brought. And if the old wineskins could not hold regular new wine, 
then brothers and sisters, you think that old wineskin, it probably would have a nuclear holocaust if you gave it the Jesus wine. <laughs> Which is exactly why, G why the new Jesus wine, hear me church, had to be delivered at the wedding of Cana in jars of clay. See, when he turned water into the Jesus wine, it wasn't in wineskins. It was in jars of clay because that was the Jesus wine. The point is, the new wine to which Jesus is referring is the good news, the joyful news, the merry news that he brings. And that merry news cannot be contained in the rituals and the symbolisms of the old covenant where blood of goats and sheep were nothing but an annual reminder of our sins and was impossible to take those sins away. But in a similar way, the new wine to which Jesus is referring is the good news, the joyful news, the merry news that he brings. And that merry news demands a new inner religious reality and a new lifestyle from all of us that will not be marked by Sabbath observances or even our Ash Wednesday fastings and the casting out of the outcasts among us and looking down even at people crossing the border. The new wine that Jesus brings yeah. has room for every person, whether or not you agree with them, their lifestyle or otherwise. And I'm not promoting anything. I'm simply saying that who are we to judge? Because our wineskin has been holding old wine for so long that when the Jesus wine comes, you better, you better be ready to make sure you don't burst. <laughs> oh, my God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. For when Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. For then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. That's the new wine, the new covenant that Jesus himself inaugurates into which the old cannot contain, whether seen as an old garment or an old wineskin. But this new wine must be put into new wineskins. And that, my brothers and sisters, that new wineskin is you. You are the new wineskin where you now have the capacity through Jesus' death and resurrection, you now have the capacity, the ability to hold the Jesus wine, to contain the Jesus wine. It's talking about containment. And when we look at our Jewish brothers and sisters who choose to hold on to the old covenant, they can't handle the new wine. So they look for another. Is there another? Is there another? But for those of us who would yet believe, you are the new wineskin. <laughs> the text has little or nothing to do with whether or not we've never done it this way before or whether or not that's not the way we used to do it. You can choose to hold on to your traditions or your legacies. Or you can choose to embrace the youth and the young adults. Either way, the essential point 
is whether or not you will allow your anxieties or your fears to prevent you from embracing the timeless message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The method may change, but the message has to be continually looked at, right? It's been around for years. You need a new algorithm to try to determine what's the pattern. Well, he gave it to us. He did. You see, that message, watch this. <laughs> my brothers and my sisters, I just love this. That message, that gospel message has been around for years through the effective use of all available technology. You see, the good news began with the oral tradition. <laughs> then it evolved to the written tradition on papyrus. Then came the printing press, which enabled mass distribution. Then we built cathedrals with microphones and audio. Then we had cable TV broadcasting on the Word Network and TBN. Then COVID-19 hit. So we had to move into the Zoom room and live streaming over the internet, which has allowed us to now be viewed in places like Zambia, Ghana, Singapore, Vietnam, Jamaica, and Guatemala, even right now. I know my friends all over the world internationally are hearing this message right now, holla, right? But soon, and very soon, AI, AI, artificial intelligence, will make sure that not one person on the entire face of this earth will not have been exposed to or have heard the universal message that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the wine. That's the new wine. And AI is going to make it possible that everybody hears it. And when the last soul hears about the good news, get ready for the trumpets will sound and the angels will sing and we prepare as worshipers even in the night. When the trumpets sound and the bridegroom comes, for the bride, we will be ready. So AI, bring it on. You can't bring it fast enough. <laughs> because I'm ready. I'm ready. But how about you? Are you stuck with old wine? Maybe. Are you even stuck with some kind of new wine? Because not all new wine is Jesus wine. Some people are bringing other kinds of strange fruit that they're fermenting into wine. But it ain't the Jesus wine. You want the Jesus wine, Kyle? They got a fine Allen Temple. Because we only serve in jars of clay. We serve the newest wine. That's the oldest new wine. <laughs> Can I call it that? The Jesus wine is the oldest new wine. And we are looking for <laughs> a few new wineskins. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.